at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Let's hear now the inspired Word of God, beginning in verse 13. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part, they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 as we focus our attention this morning upon verses 13 and 14. Here the Apostle Paul exhorts the Corinthian church in these words, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, or literally that should be translated, be a man. It's the word for man which is turned into a verb. The King James says, quit you like men, That has all kinds of implications in our modern parlance, but um, other translations say act like a man, but it really doesn't focus our attention upon acting or quitting or any of these things. Um, Be a man. Man up. That's the idea, if we could just distill it. So watch, stand fast in the faith. Man up, or be a man. Be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Let all that you do be done with love. But today we have the privilege of celebrating and observing the sacrament of baptism. We have the opportunity to take in our hands, as it were, as a congregation, a little baby boy and receive him into our fellowship. And we have an opportunity to do this through the ordinance of baptism. The Scriptures speak to us of members of the church being baptized by one Spirit into one body. And certainly we can think of Spirit baptism as relevant in a general sense, but it is the Holy Spirit in Acts 20 who sets apart officers of the church, overseers. So the Holy Spirit is involved not only in the inward work of salvation, but also in the outward work of the visible church. It's the Holy Spirit who gives spiritual gifts, who sets apart officers. Uh, It was the Holy Spirit uh, who was signified in the anointing oil of the Old Testament for the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And it's the Holy Spirit not only who inwardly regenerates the hearts of God's elect, It's also the Holy Spirit who 
uh, is involved in incorporating members into the visible church of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways he does that is through the baptism of covenant children. They're baptized into one body. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tells us that they are holy. Paul says, but now they, the children of at least one believing parent, but now they are holy. Not just in the old covenant, but now. Now they are holy. And so we receive them into the holy fellowship of the visible church. These little ones are baptized into the visible body of Jesus Christ. Now, as we seek to perform this ordinance of Jesus Christ, as we seek to baptize and teach and train this little one, uh, we can't help but consider the subject of biblical manhood. Biblical manhood. Because you see, this little baby boy that will be baptizing, Lord willing, is going to be an adult, Lord willing going to be a man, going to grow up in wisdom and stature, and we pray growing up and developing in the knowledge of God, in favor with God and man. The desire for this child, and certainly the covenant promise held forth to this child to be received by faith, is that this child will grow up and become a godly man, a man of God, equipped for every good work. Timothy is a perfect example. 2 Timothy 3, we see that he knew the Scriptures from an early age, which were able to make him wise unto salvation. But the the usefulness of the Bible didn't stop there for Timothy. It also enabled him to, to be a man of God, equipped for every good work in his calling as a minister of the Gospel. He was a biblical man. And that's our desire for this little one that we'll be baptizing that he would grow into biblical manhood. And really, every person that's baptized, whether you're baptized as an infant or as an adult, professing your faith and coming into the church for the first time, you ought to be striving with the Spirit of God in your soul to be a biblical man or a biblical woman. Now, when we've baptized little baby girls uh, in the past, I've preached on that topic from Proverbs 31 and Uh, Certainly from Psalm 144, our daughters as palace cornerstones. But here we have a little boy. We're focusing on what we desire for this little boy and what we desire for all of the baptized men in our congregation to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ of whom Pilate said, not fully understanding the implications, behold, the man. We desire every baptized male person to become filled with biblical manhood in every aspect of his life in conformity to the man Christ Jesus. And in the midst of this epistle of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing a whole host of problems in the church at that time. And in the midst of all this, he urges them in verse 13, right there in the middle of the verse, to be brave, or as I've mentioned, better translated, man up. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, well, why do some translations say be brave? Why do they take out the idea of manhood and masculinity from that exhortation? Of course, we can't get into the minds of the translators of the New King James or of various other translations. It's unclear. But I think it's fair to say that in the broader Christian community, 
there is a tendency to want to distance ourselves from any concept of a distinctly masculine or distinctly feminine Christianity. That gender or sex plays any role in the manifestation of godliness in the Christian life. And so perhaps, we don't know their intentions in the New King James, but perhaps many Christians are more comfortable with a general exhortation to everybody to be brave more comfortable with that than they would be if we said, men, you need to act like men. Perhaps some people would get the wrong impression that because men need to act like men and that it would be inappropriate for men to act like women, that therefore the Bible is downplaying or downgrading women. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, if there is any sexism or misogyny, in in interpreting or translating this text, I would argue it's more so in saying that that a translation of a term that means be a man should be translated be brave. In other words, are we saying that women in order to be brave need to become men? Are we saying that bravery really is distinctively masculine? Or that bravery is uniquely something that we see in a biblical man as opposed to a biblical woman. You see, bravery is common to both genders. And so if Paul says man up, he's he's not saying, well, in order for women to jump on board with this exhortation, they need to be you know, to be brave, they need to man up. That that could give all the wrong signals. And in fact, many of the, the people who advocate for feminism and desire to blur the lines on these type of issues, ultimately are at war with biblical femininity. The idea that a woman can be brave and be feminine. The idea that a woman can be godly, and as Proverbs 31 says, be a virtuous, or literally in the Hebrew, a powerful woman, that they don't like that. A woman, in order to be powerful, needs to be like a man needs to follow the path that men have followed, and that's really her path to value and influence and usefulness in the world. But you see, the Bible says, no, uh, there are unique commands for men and women. Both have value. Both are important. There's female bravery. Look at Jael, you know, pounding the tent peg into Sisera's temple. You, you have many examples of female bravery in the Bible, but this text is speaking specifically about men. It's speaking about the men in Corinth and the fact that they're not acting like men. Be a man. Man up. In some sense, for men to be men, women need to be women and vice versa. So again, this is not irrelevant for women. Certainly the women in Corinth would have benefited greatly if the men in Corinth would have manned up and vice versa. So we all have a part to play. God sets the terms. There are two genders, two sexes, and this one is specifically addressed to the men. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be men. Man up. Be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Now in Corinth, there is a crisis of manhood. There's no other way to put it. You read through 1 Corinthians and there's a deafening silence concerning the elders in this church or group of churches. Where are the church leaders? Why are they not called out? Why are they not involved? Why is it that when Paul gets a report that there are divisions 
and confusions and sects arising within the church. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. Why is it that in chapter 1, verse 11, we find that it was the household of Chloe, a female head of household in Corinth, was the one uh, asking for help from Paul, crying out for help from the apostle, giving this report to Paul. Where were the elders? Why was it the household of Chloe? Why not the men? Why not the elders of the church? Where are they? What are they doing? That's a constant question that we have as we read through this epistle. What's happening here? There are divisions and contentions in this church. All these different groups, sectarian groups are arising, uh, built around their commitment or their allegiance to one preacher or another preacher. We even have in chapter 6, lawsuits among believers. So you've got one believer against another believer going to court before pagan judges. And Paul says, listen, the elders of the church should be handling this. Why aren't the elders, why aren't the the faithful, godly men of the church adjudicating these disagreements and finding a solution using their God-given biblical wisdom? Why aren't they sorting it out in-house? Why are you going before unbelievers and casting reproach upon the reputation of Christ and His church? It's interesting in chapter 6, verse 5, Paul says something that, that, again, causes us to think of this crisis of manhood. He says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? Listen to this again. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? Now this raises the question, is it the case that they didn't have wise and competent men to to adjudicate these matters in-house within the church? Or is Paul saying that there were sufficiently wise men in the church, but they were sitting back passively and not taking ownership and dealing with the problems? I don't know. You could argue it perhaps based on the grammar, whether you would take that as a rhetorical question. You know, you have these godly men, why aren't they doing anything? Or you don't have these godly men. And either way, it's a crisis of manhood. I mean, what does it matter if we have a bunch of godly men in the church that sit back and don't do anything? Either way, it's a crisis. There's also a lack of discipline. Chapter 5, there's a sexual scandal. Something that even the wicked pagan Gentiles would not even talk about in polite conversation. A man has his father's wife. Sexual perversion of the highest order. And we also have in chapter 15, people going around denying the resurrection of the body. Preaching and teaching heresy. Whether these are members, whether these are false teachers that arose, unauthorized preachers and teachers, whether they're apostate church officers, we don't know, but there are people questioning and denying the physical resurrection of the body, which then, of course, strikes at the heart of the Christian faith because it really would preclude or deny the physical bodily resurrection of Christ Himself. So you've got sexual perversion, you've got 
heresy of the worst kind. And Paul says in chapter 5, don't you understand that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And then in chapter 15, he says something really equivalent in a certain way. He says that evil communications corrupt good morals. Bad company corrupts good character. So you've got leaven leavening the lump. You've got evil communications and and bad company and people that are in the life of the church that need to be handed over to Satan, need to be excommunicated, need to be sent out. And yet it's all running wild in this church where either there aren't godly men or they're too passive. Uh, There's also gender confusion Chapter 11, you've got women leading worship, praying and prophesying. In other words, preaching the Word, leading the worship service. Paul rebukes that in chapter 14. He says women are to be silent in the worship assembly. Okay, But you've got women leading worship, praying and prophesying with heads uncovered, and there's total chaos in worship. People speaking in tongues. It's not being interpreted. Nobody knows what's happening, and they're just sort of reveling in the chaos. It's, it's not decent and in order, it's indecent and disorderly. Total confusion and chaos, even among the gender roles in the church. Paul says that the heads of household, the men, are being dishonored. Their heads are being dishonored by some of these practices. But, but where are these heads of household? Why aren't they saying anything? Very interesting that Paul gets the report of these things from a woman, Chloe. In addition... There's chaos at the communion table. Paul says it's so bad, you've turned it into this drunken feast where some people are starving and other people are gorging themselves on food and getting drunk. You're coming together, and it's not even the Lord's Supper, he says, chapter 11. It's it's a false sacrament. It's not even the Lord's Supper. It's that bad. He says you're coming together not for the better, but for the worse In some sense, it'd be better if you didn't even participate. If you just stood in the back and didn't even participate in whatever this ordinance that you've contrived, this drunken feast. He says you're coming together for the worse and and essentially what should be a cup of blessing has become a deadly curse. People are dying. They're getting sick. Sounds like an emergency. Again, aside from Chloe's household, We hear crickets in the background in terms of the elders and the men of the church. Where are these elders? 1 Corinthians 12.28, a classic proof text for Presbyterian church government and the office of ruling elder. The gift of governments. The gift of government. Where are these governors? Uh, Where are these men? There's a crisis of manhood. Secondly, a call to manhood. A call to manhood. And we see that in verse 13 of our text. A number of exhortations here. We're going to look at each one of them in order. First, watch. He's calling them to watch. Now we know he's speaking to the men because a couple words later he says, be a man. So clearly he's addressing the men here. And he's calling them to biblical manhood. And the first thing that he says to them is, watch. And this word could be rendered, translated, even interpreted in different ways. I think the best way to look at it is he's saying, wake up. Be watchful, be vigilant, be sober, be awake. Or again, you could translate this, wake up or stay awake. 
Either you're asleep or you're nodding off. Wake up. Pay attention. Pay attention, especially the elders of the church who are to be faithful men ruling their household well and faithfully governing the church. Wake up. The deacons of the church, the men of the church, so on and so forth. This is very important for us as men, even with respect to our families. Are we paying attention to our families? Do we know what our children are watching? Do we know what they're listening to? Do we know what, you know, not reading their minds, but out of the heart the mouth speaks? Do we know what they're thinking? Do we, do we have open communication? Um, you know, they, they say, I don't remember what the, what the time span is, but, you know, if, if the sun just you know, went out like a light and exploded and ceased to exist, it would take a certain amount of time for us to find out, okay? Uh, I don't know if that's true, but how long would it take you, if your children start going off the rails spiritually, how long would it take you to find out? What would be the amount of time before you would notice? Or would, would some serious problem in your child's life, maybe a concern, maybe they're, they're having a problem with suicidal thoughts or depression, maybe they're having a problem with a particular sin, maybe they've met someone and had a relationship and that's growing that is not good, how long does it take you to find out? Proverbs 27 verse 23 Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. So again, this is true for men. It's true for husbands and fathers. It's true for elders and pastors and church leaders across the board. It's true of presbyteries with their congregations. It's true of the synod with its presbyteries. This is a principle. Wake up and pay attention and know what's happening. Know the condition of the souls under your charge in whatever sphere that we're dealing with here. You need to be paying attention. You get the sense perhaps even Paul, who is miles and miles away, is finding out about some of these things with greater clarity than even the men or elders in the church. Chloe's telling him, perhaps she tried to go to the elders, who knows. But Paul, from a distance, is rebuking this church for things that are happening in its own backyard. That's not natural. That's not how it should be. He's saying, wake up. Pay attention. Don't be the last to know. Don't be oblivious. Right? This is a temptation or or a pitfall even for myself. As an elder in the church, as trying to govern and pay attention to the condition of the flock and of the members of the church, am I paying attention to my family and what's happening in their lives? Am I paying close attention to my children or to my wife or to what's happening? These are important things. It's it's something I need to be aware of. And I'm sure I've fallen short of that at times. But this is something we need to wake up and be attentive and pay attention to those under our charge as husbands, as fathers, as elders and deacons and so on and so forth. Stay awake, be awake, wake up, pay attention. Secondly, stand fast in the faith. Stand fast in the faith. Now, Corinth had started off well. You can read about this in the book of Acts. Chapter 18. You can read of how Paul met up with Priscilla and Aquila, these tent makers, and Paul happened to have gained that trade as a youngster perhaps. And so, 
he's able to help and work with them and they're able to make a living and put food on the table and he gets to know them. And so they, they, they're all believers and, and uh, th- there's this unity they have and they work together, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. And pretty soon there's another convert, Justice and then Crispus and his family. And then we're told that the Lord comes to Paul and says, in fact, I have many in this city. And so there are all kinds of people, elect people that are yet unconverted. And they're preaching and teaching first in the synagogue, then in society. And the Lord is gathering His elect, building His church. Paul labored in ministry in Corinth. Silas labored in ministry in Corinth. Eventually, Timothy, Apollos. A lot of these heavy hitters in the early church, they're laboring. They're preaching the gospel day in and day out, week in and week out, among the Corinthians in either this one congregation or this cluster of congregations. Scholars debate that in terms of the setup there. But they had many spiritual privileges and they started off quite well. But as was the case in Galatia, Paul asks, you started off well, you ran well, who hindered you? What happened? How did this go uh, astray? You can see in chapter 1, verse 4 and following, some of the encouraging things that the Apostle Paul says to them about their faith, about their uh, spiritual giftedness, and you you can read that for yourself. So, So a lot of things were going well, but what went wrong? How did we get to the chaos of 1 Corinthians from that strong start? How did we get here? What went wrong? Well, obviously they didn't stand fast. And we don't have the details, but we can assume that this failure to stand fast included the men of the church. Uh, It wasn't limited to them, but surely, I mean, certainly the the women that are, you know, doing whatever they're doing, leading, prophesying, and praying in the pulpit, and throwing caution to the wind, uh, they're, they're not honoring God either. So they haven't held fast at all. But... Certainly it includes the men, and here Paul addresses the men, stand fast in the faith. It's easy for us to start off strong in our Christian life. Perhaps you're a fairly new convert, and uh, as many of, of our newer members, you started watching Paul Washer videos, the shocking youth message, and you got all excited about the Christian faith, and you're reading your Bible and praying every day and evangelizing, and you, you started off well But eventually, either through affliction that comes into your life or blessing and prosperity, outward prosperity that just lures you away from seeking first God's kingdom and His righteousness in your life, prioritizing spiritual things, whatever it is, whether it's the intimidation of the world, the frown of the world, the smile of the world, uh, you've been lured to slip away to slip away. This is what Paul warns against in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. Drifting away. He says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Are you drifting in your devotional life? Are you drifting in your family worship? Are you drifting in what you think about, what's important to you, what you spend your time on, how you prioritize your week? Uh, the love that you ought to be showing to other people in your life, especially your family members. Men, are, is your heart drifting away from Christ, drifting away from your wife, drifting away from your children, drifting away from your responsibilities? Are you experiencing mission drift in the Christian life? 
In Corinth, no doubt, this played a part. They weren't standing fast in the faith. And I think it's fair to say that these men in Corinth, Justice, Crispus, whoever the elders were there, they didn't start out with the intention to plant a church that would eventually be ravaged by lawsuits. I don't think when they had their first worship service, they were thinking that, oh, we're pretty soon this guy's going to be suing that guy. Um, they never intended that to happen. They never in, in a million years would have intended or even uh, imagined that a man in the church would have his father's wife. It never even entered into their thought process. They weren't wanting a church with women preachers preaching and praying and prophesying and, and doing whatever they're doing up there. But it, it happened. They didn't want it to happen, but it happened. It happened. And you look at the history of uh, Presbyterian denominations throughout the world and even in our own country, the people that started these denominations in most cases are some of the most rock-solid theologians and churchmen that you'll ever find. And these denominations never started out desiring to be ravaged by perversion and feminism and all these things, but it just happened because they didn't stand fast. And it's easier said than done. We shouldn't sit here and pretend that you know, Southfield RP Church is, is going to be uh, faithful to the Bible for the next 500 years as if that's an absolute given. Uh, we pray and hope it's the case. But, but this is hard. It's hard to stand fast. And sometimes we think of the Christian life as movement. We're walking with God. We're running in the way of His commandments. Even the passage I quoted from Galatians, you ran well. But here we're told that there's another way of expressing biblical faithfulness, and that is standing fast in the faith. Standing. When everyone around you is urging you, luring you, whispering to you to move from your, from your stance, from the stance that you've taken, move just a little bit, just take a step in this direction or in that direction. And the Lord is calling you to remain steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Just stay put on the truth of God. Just retain your stance. Hold your stance. And and everything's against you. And it's like if you're at uh, the beach at Port Huron, you know, let's say 15 feet out into the current. If you just stand there and you're, you're not making any effort to stand fast, you're going to move. You're going to move downstream because although it's Lake Huron, it really, the current moves more like a river if you've never been there. It's swift. It's difficult. There's a sense in which you have to swim in order to stand fast. And I think that's the situation in the church in every age in this world. That this command to run in the way of God's commandments and to stand fast, these things can be brought together. If you're at Port Huron, if you're in Lake Huron in that situation, you actually have to strive in the other direction just to hold your spot. And so standing fast in the faith is not a position of laziness or laxity or passivity. You have to be active, striving to hold fast and stand fast in the faith. And uh, this is something that Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul urges. Listen to this. Philippians 1.27 
He says that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. See that? You're standing, but you're striving. That's the idea here. Stand fast in the faith, in the truth and righteousness of the Word of God. And so to stand still, to remain passive, is to be swept away by the current. Whether it's gradual or subtle, you're going to compromise. And I'm not sure what that's going to look like for you as a father with your children. Uh, We have some newlyweds. We have couples that have gotten married in recent years. We have couples having their first child, second child. We have young families. And and when we did our premarital counseling or when when, when you sat down with your newly wedded spouse and worked out the details of the principles of how you're going to govern your family, uh, are you going to stand fast and stand firm? Or are these the kind of principles that you you cling to until there's some alternate route that you find pressure to go in that and then you just, you know, throw it away and and do something different? Are you going to stand fast, men, in the principles that you've adopted from the Word of God? Or are you going to compromise? The same could be said for the elders of the church, presbyteries, denominations. We need to strive to stand fast in the faith. Clearly, clearly the things happening in Corinth were not according to the principles that these men had espoused at the outset. Well, thirdly, be a man. Be brave. Man up. Act like a man. uh, Be a man. Be strong. We're going to take these two together simply because we've already said quite a bit about manning up. Be a man be strong. God has made men and women different. He's created men to have a position of leadership in the home, in the family, the church, in the state. God has created men to have a certain function. We could could spend a lot of time on that. But you find specific commands to men and specific commands to women throughout the Word of God. Both men and women are to be conformed to Jesus Christ, not men more than women or women more than men. Uh, But there is an aspect of manhood that is different from womanhood. And therefore, female godliness is going to be distinct from male godliness in terms of those functions and expressions in life and in society. And so he's saying to the men, be a man. Don't be a woman. Don't be anything else. Be a man. Don't be a child. Don't be a boy. Be a man. And in connection with that, he speaks of Uh, the need to be strong. Now, this word be strong, I think, helps qualify what he means by be a man. Not that only men are strong, but there's a strength that men need to exercise. And in fact, the word that's used here for strong is the word from which we get the term uh, democrat. Now, don't don't take me the wrong way with that, but um, it's the crat part. Rule, bureaucrat, Democrat. I'm trying to think of a positive term here, but um, anyway, uh, crat. It means power. It means dominion. It means rule. And so you think about this term, it refers not merely to physical strength, although that can play a part, certainly throughout history, in power, dominion, and rule. That, that's an element sometimes, but the predominant emphasis here is strength for power, rule, dominion. Be firm in your leadership. 
Be persistent in guiding and directing those that God has placed under your care, under your charge, under your authority. Don't be passive. And that's the key. It's not as though women are to be entirely passive, but there's something about men in leadership where they need to take the bull by the horns and they need to be active. And they cannot possibly be a good leader if they are passive. If we think about this strength, this dominion that God calls these men to exercise, we can think of it in a number of ways. There are a number of ways that were to manifest this firmness, this persistence, this active uh, we won't say aggressive, but, but there's a proactive, perhaps is a better term, a proactive strength and governance in these spheres of life. Uh, we can think of it in different ways. First, self-control. He who has control over his own spirit, he who controls his own temper, the proverb says, is better than a mighty man who takes a city. Men, be strong, be a man. And that means that you're not just letting loose and, you know, this overflow of anger when you're angry or of joy when you're happy and all these, but self-control. Self-control. Controlling your own heart, riveting it to Jesus Christ and to the Word of God. Thinking before you speak examining and evaluating the thoughts and intents of your heart and gravitating toward God's revealed will. This is a fruit of the Spirit. Temperance, self-control. Paul says, tell the young men to be sober-minded. We need to have control, power, dominion, rule over ourselves or we're not going to have any success or fruitfulness in having power, dominion, or rule over anyone or anything else. It starts with self-government. And that's the idea here. The chaos and confusion in Corinth is largely due to men in leadership who aren't first and foremost controlling themselves and thinking biblically and making biblical decisions and taking biblical actions with a sort of logic, a thought process, a carefulness, a a, a sober-mindedness. Chaos in the church begins with chaos in the minds of leaders in the church and in the family. Secondly, marital authority. Uh, Be a man, be strong, be firm, be a faithful and diligent and persistent leader. Don't be passive in your marriage. 1 Timothy 3.4 tells us that uh, those who are elders of the church should rule their household well, that includes the wife, washing her with water by the word. So be a man, be strong, exercise marital authority in your home in a loving Christ-like way. But don't be passive, don't just sit back along for the ride, but taking initiative, being proactive. Thirdly, parental authority, same verse, 1 Timothy 3.4, because the children are part of your household as well. Eli, in the Old Testament, the priest, was rebuked by the Lord for honoring his sons more than he honored the Lord. We need to be careful, even with our love for our children, that we're subjecting it to the will of God, to the honor of God, to the glory of God, utilizing our parental authority in love to shape and discipline and instruct and parent our children, especially as husbands, 
in a God-honoring way. If we don't do that, then we're honoring our sons more than we're honoring God, and that's idolatry. So we need to be active, not passive. Finally, church authority. Titus 2.15. Paul is in this pastoral epistle urging Titus uh, as he tells him how to instruct and disciple the uh, various ages and demographics within the church. He says to, to verse 15, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. See, in the church today, as it was in Crete, because if you follow that epistle of Titus closely, you'll find that uh, it's a lot like our culture today, as it was in Crete. But uh, in terms of Crete, in terms of the situation for Titus, he would have been despised. To exercise authority in an unruly culture is, is to put your head on the chopping block. People don't like authority. They don't like to be told what to do. They don't like to be held accountable. And even if they like it, as regenerate believers, their sinful flesh really doesn't like it. And so if the flesh takes over in the life of a Christian, they're going to be throwing stones at the leadership. The leadership's going to have sheep bites all over. Okay, so... Elders in the church, they don't want to deal with that. They're, they're tempted to not want to mess with that, and rightly so in a sense, right? We understand it's not pleasant, and we don't want to be trigger-happy in the church. But there are times when that authority needs to be exercised, right? And that's why we have a plurality of elders. When we take steps of discipline, it's because all of the elders are in agreement to take that step prayerfully, thoughtfully, mindful of the Word of God after a long and thorough process. We're not quick to the trigger, but, but we need to have the trigger and use the trigger in that Presbyterian way. Uh, that was not happening in Corinth. And it was much to the chagrin and demise of the church. Uh, fourth exhortation, do everything in love. If you want real strength, you need love. Love is stronger than death, the Bible says. If you don't have love, you don't have strength. How did Jesus offer up Himself on the cross, bearing the infinite wrath of God? How did He do it? We know that His divine nature sustained Him under the infinite wrath of God. Yes, that's true. But at every point when the Bible speaks of that sacrifice, at every point, It emphasizes His love. He loved them to the end. He loved us and gave Himself up for us. Men, if you're going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in your leadership, in your strength, then your strength needs to be a loving strength and a strong love. These things are inseparable. No love, no strength. No love, no strength. No strength, no love. Right? If you're not willing to use the strength and authority, then it's unloving. But if you're not using love and compassion, and you're just exercising authority in a domineering way, lording it over the flock, that's not at all what Paul is urging here. That's not masculine at all. Nor is it feminine. It's, it's satanic, really. He says, do everything in love. Just as your heavenly Father disciplines in love according to measure. Hebrews 12 to bring forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Just as the Lord Jesus loved His church and gave Himself for her, washes her with water by the Word. Just as the Holy Spirit 
uh, as it were anointed the prophets, the priests, and the kings of the Old Testament. And, and it was the Holy Spirit of government and wisdom and rule and dominion and authority that, that, that was able to make that biblical leadership happen. Even so, we find these examples that turn us to, the, to, to our duty. To be a man, to be strong, and to do all these things in love. Finally, just a few comments here before we move to our baptism. The source of manhood. The source of manhood. It's interesting to me that right after Paul addresses the men in this way, that he turns their attention to the household of Stephanus. The household of Stephanus. Verse 15, I urge you, brethren. Now, that, that word brethren is inclusive of the sisters of the church ordinarily, and perhaps it's here as well. But certainly, th- there is something of an emphasis here on these men who are supposed to be men. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, that is, of this Corinthian region. It's the first fruits the household of Stephanus. And we're told that Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus visited Paul and it was refreshing. It was a blessing for him when they visited him from Achaia, from Corinth. These are godly men. Uh, again, we don't know what role they had. Maybe they were the only godly men in these Corinthian churches or in this Corinthian church. But here are godly men from Corinth. Paul says, look to these men. Submit to them. Maybe they're elders. Seems to be, he says, to submit to such. Verse 16. Or maybe he just means to uh, help to further their ministry. Some people think they were deacons. There's a debate about that. But uh, these are godly men who are taking godly steps to help curb the problem in Corinth. And he says that they're the first fruits. In other words, their biblical manhood did not come from themselves, from their own strength of character, from their family history, uh, from, from watching, you know, Jordan Peterson video, right? The, their biblical manhood came from the Holy Spirit, from the Bible, from the work of God who gave the increase, 1 Corinthians 1.16, God gave the increase. Paul, Apollo, Cephas, they all watered, planted, fertilized, pruned, all these things. But God gave the increase, and this is the first new convert in all of the Corinthian church, Stephanus and his household, the first fruits. Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, these are the result of God's sovereign grace. The same sovereign grace that is pictured in baptism that we desire for this little baby boy, the same sovereign grace that is at the disposal of all God's people who are believing in Christ, who have every spiritual blessing reserved for them in heavenly places. Biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, biblical everything is yours in Christ. All that you need for life and godliness. All that you need for biblical manhood or womanhood. First fruits. God gave the increase in the lives of this remnant of godly men who probably delivered this letter to Paul. Now, uh, it is interesting as we prepare for a baptism that the baptism of Stephanus is mentioned in chapter 1 and verse 16. Paul says, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Uh, 
Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. The waters of baptism for Stephanus and his household signified the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If he was an adult convert and professed faith and entered the church for the first time with his household, as as is likely the case, then it's a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate him, which had already happened. But it's also a work of the Holy Spirit to pour out all of the gifts and graces that Stephanus and his household needed for their life of service, of which it says in our text that, that, that they addicted themselves to the service of the saints. My friends, your baptisms point to the same thing. The baptism of this little boy today points to the same thing. The sovereign grace that is yours in Christ, that you receive by faith, and that equips you for every good work so that you can addict yourself to the service of God and the labor of His kingdom and His church. There is nothing lacking in the cleansing and equipping power of the Holy Spirit for the believer. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, my friends, but it's there for you right now. As you see this baptism, as you witness it, cling and to and claim these promises. Claim these blessings for yourself and go forth as a biblical man, as a biblical woman, fulfilling your duties. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks for Your Word and we pray Your blessing upon it that it would feed and nourish our souls, that it would direct our steps, and that it would give joy to our hearts to know that we have all that we need, even the fullness of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.